0: Dear God, we thank you for this time together. We are grateful for your kindness to us, your incredible patience, your mercy, your grace. Lord, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge uh, our defiance of you. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us anyway and that you offered your son. We thank you for that incredible, remarkable gift. Lord, I pray you will open our hearts this morning to uh, the message about your son and his role, uh, one of the many roles he plays for us. And I just pray that you'll open our hearts to that sweet balm of forgiveness. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're an outline person, there's one in the bulletin. And also, if you're online, there should be an outline that's available there on the Facebook page that you can grab. So, just want to talk about Jesus today, and we're going to go to a passage in the book of Hebrews in just a moment. When I talk to many people in our culture about Christ, about Jesus Christ, what I hear the most are concepts of Him kind of being a life coach or Him being a perfect example. And while I think those are true, those statements are true, when I have those conversations, I believe that. A person, if that's all they see in Christ, they're missing the point because those don't really deal with our main problem, with the problem that has shattered our souls, with the problems that have separated us from our Creator. And that is our sin problem. R.C. Sproul, I read years ago, and he said he described sin in this way. He said it is committing cosmic treason against God. And the idea is that. God has established right and wrong. God has established His law. And we are lawbreakers. My professor, Jack Kostler, who was in seminary, talked about uh, double trouble when it comes to our sins. He talked about the idea that sin uh, makes us guilty. It's that lawbreaker piece of what sin means. And it could be just very, very blatant. It can be, you know, that we're defiant. It could also be that we just miss the mark because the law doesn't just call us to avoid certain negative things. It calls us to the positive. It calls us to love others, and we don't quite hit that. We miss the mark, like shooting at a target, and you don't even hit the target sometimes. And so, the first part of our double trouble with sin is that we are lawbreakers, that we, it makes us guilty. And this is a serious problem. And just as a criminal shakes in fear before a judge who's about to hand down a sentence, we as defiant lawbreakers someday will sit before or stand before our maker, our creator who is holy and perfect and righteous and we will answer for our behavior. And that ought to give us pause. The second part of our double trouble is that sin also gives us a sinful heart. Sin is like a sickness. Jeremiah talks about our sin being deceitful and that our heart, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked which is it's fascinating because in our culture, it's very common for people to give the advice, follow your heart. And I think I know what they mean by that. It's follow your passion when it comes to your work. And that's, that's not all bad, but be very careful about following your heart. Your heart can get you in trouble if it's not a redeemed new heart in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about our spiritual condition, not just as sickness like Jeremiah. He actually uses the image of that we're spiritually dead talks about this in the book of Ephesians. And so, when it comes down to relating to God, there's really only two paths when it comes to relating to God. One path is the path of law. And the way Cottrell sums this up, he says, Keep the commandments, escape the penalty. Break the commandments, suffer the penalty. Now, that's fair, right? Keep the commandments... Escape the penalty, break the commandments, suffer the penalty. The problem is the penalty is eternal separation from God. We refer to it as a place called hell. And it's a terrible thing to be separated from all that is good and right and holy and loving. And yet that is the penalty for our lawlessness and our rebellion this really is not just the way that secular mankind tends to approach God. This really is the path of religion. Because religion, if you dig down into most religions, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's Buddhism, it, there's this concept of just, you know, trying to be good, to do certain things. And not every faith system has the idea of a creator, personal God, but most do. And most, there's this idea that to get close, you have to be good and you earn your way. Timothy Keller, the author and pastor, once said this. He said, The essence of other religions is advice. So it's advice on how to do that, whereas Christianity is essentially news, good news that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and took care of our sin problem and offers us a way that is not based on ourselves because ourselves, we are inadequate. We will not do it. See, the way of grace, according to Jack Cottrell, my professor, he said this, is to keep the commandments but to suffer the penalty. That doesn't sound fair. Keep the commandments but suffer the penalty. It's not fair. But Jesus signed up for it. He said, I'll do it. He came and he lived a sinless life and he offered it for me and for you, for all of your sins and so he did that. That's the first part of what makes grace work. Keep the commandments but suffer the penalty so that the rest of us, we have broken the commandments but escaped the penalty. And what is given to us is this gift of salvation, not this way of self-improvement, although we will change and grow, but this gift of salvation. And so we need to understand this. Our problem, you may think that your main problem is self-esteem. You may think that your main problem is the struggles in your marriage or your finances. Your main problem, the number one problem in your life and mine, is our sin. It's our sin. It's our rebellion. It's our lawlessness. It's our brokenness and our sickness. One way to kind of test yourself on how am I trying to approach God is to ask yourself, if I'm standing before the gates of heaven and the gatekeeper comes out and asks me, so why should we let you in, Bill? Why should we let you in, Sally? What's your response to that? Many, many people respond with a list. Well, because I'm a good father. Father because I've been faithful to my wife, because I pay my taxes, I never got in trouble with the police. And they go down the list of the good things that they have done. And while those are valuable in this life, they will not get you into heaven. See, that's approaching the perfect holy creator via law. A much better answer, the only answer that's going to get you in, is something to the effect of pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, I'm with him. See, that's grace. Unmerited favor. I didn't earn it. Nothing is owed to me. You know, one of the old songs we sang when I was a kid in church is that there's nothing to the cross I bring. You know, empty hands. We show up with empty hands. We need to see this. So the solution to our sin problem Is Jesus and specifically something that we don't talk about a lot but I want you to think about this particular role of Jesus today and that is his role as the heavenly high priest and to give you a little bit of background because not everybody has a long church background but let me just give you a little bit of background on Jewish faith and the role of the high priest and that system Because to read this passage in Hebrews, I think you need a little bit of background to to get it as we unpack it, as we look through it. So, just to give you one little snippet of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition and ritual and all that comes with the Jewish faith that Christianity emerged out of, that Christianity I just view as completed Judaism because Judaism looked forward to someone who was coming to deal with the sin problem, forward to someone who was going to come and make things right, and Jesus was that someone. But what was set up was the system in which the severity And the seriousness of sin was driven home. Because in our culture, if you watch and if you listen, we don't think sin's a big deal, most of us. That's the tendency. You know, somebody, some politician gets caught doing something pretty big and and the classic line is he'll get up and say, well, mistakes were made. Sin is a huge issue. And so in the Jewish faith, what happened, what comes out of the Hebrew scriptures as the way that they dealt with sin, and so for hundreds of years, what you had was you had these priests, and specifically you had a high priest who was the representative of the people to God. He was our mediator. He was the one in between. And you have this high priest and to give you one example of kind of the sacrificial system and how it worked, they had this high and holy day called the Day of Atonement. It only came around once a year. Now, the priests were always doing these sacrifices where they would take an animal and kill the animal. And I know that we, you know, many are animal lovers here, and that's a hard concept for us. But I think it drove home the severity of... And the sobering reality that the wages of sin is death. And so I have to stand there, confess my sins, and a priest takes the life of this animal to drive home for me that the wages of sin is death. That the cost of sin is death. Now we may have experienced that in our lives. It might mean the death of your marriage because of a particular sin. It might be the death of your career because of particular sins. It might be the death of a friendship because of particular sins. But this was a dramatic, physical, in-your-face, full-sensory experience that the wages of sin is death. And you watch this animal pay this price for you to temporarily cover your sins as they're rolled forward to the cross of Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice. So on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest would get up, he would bathe himself, this picture of cleansing. He would put on his official outfit so that he is in that, that mode as the mediator between God and man. And once a year, he would do this Day of Atonement ritual. Now what would happen is first, he would offer a bull, a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins and the sins of his household. Now make a make a note of that, that we had a high priest in Judaism who had a sin problem, had the exact same problem I have, the same problem you have. Does that make you nervous that he's the mediator? He's the one that's going to fix this when he's got the exact same problem I do? And then what he does is then he takes two goats, and one, he confesses the sins of the nation, the people, and he lays their hands on this goat. They call it the scapegoat. That word, that term is still in our language today, and the idea is they lay the sins of the group on this particular person, and they let the goat go, and he runs off into the wilderness, and the idea is you don't see those sins again. Then takes the other goat, sacrifices that animal, and... You see that message of the wages of sin is death. Then the blood from that animal that's sacrificed, I apologize if you're squeamish, but this was the Jewish faith, this temporary faith that points to the Messiah and what we have in Jesus. And he takes the blood and he goes into what represents the very presence of God, whether it's the tabernacle or later in the temple. And you have what represents the throne of God, the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Now, everybody, we we can't, if we were Jewish, we couldn't all go into the Holy of Holies. We can't just approach the Holy of Holies. That's the high priest, this one mediator, one time a year can go into the Holy of Holies. Now, it's not in the Bible, but some tell us that 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 there was a tradition that some would, um, because he's a sinner, right? And he's going into the very presence of a holy and just and righteous God. One of the dangers was, what if he strikes the high priest dead? What do we do? How do we get the body out? Who wants to go in and get him? I mean, that's, talk about a short straw uh, job there. And so one of the traditions that I've read is that they'd tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he goes in so they could pull him out if that's what happened. Notice this system. Notice this system that is given from the Hebrew Scriptures, which God gave, does not, when you're looking at this, point to warmth and deep friendship and a father's love. You know, all the things that we're drawn to, that the images that we use. Notice the separation. Notice how it drives home the severity of our sin problem. You can read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 if you want to. And so you see this faith system that is temporary, that is pointing to Jesus and is completed in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. And I want you to just have a little bit of that background before we read this passage. It's a little longer than I normally read, but I want you to read this with me. It's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17, through chapter 8, verse 13. And I'm going to pause a lot and talk a little bit, and then I'll just pull out a few things at the end, okay? So we read this particular passage. Now, one context. The book of Hebrews, you know, the Holy Spirit writes it through this author, and he writes it to Jewish people, so genetic Jews, who have become Christians... And their context and their situation is, now they are in a situation where they are being persecuted for the faith, like many countries around the world today. So these Jewish Christians, these completed Jews, these Messianic Jews, are being persecuted, and so they are tempted to just go back to Judaism, because Judaism is on the politically correct approved list. You can be a Jew in the Roman Empire, not be persecuted, or at least not to the level, but if you're a Christian, this group running around saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not Caesar. If I could just step back, it's like, well, aren't I in relationship with the true God? Aren't I honoring the scriptures? You know, Christians, we honor the Old Testament. We view it as from God, even though it was for a particular purpose in a particular time. We're New Testament people now. But understand this. And so you have this this group of people who are deeply tempted to go back. To step back to avoid persecution. To leave the Christian faith and step into the Jewish faith once again. And so in the book of Hebrews, this big theme that you see is, hey, Christianity is better. Watch for that word. Watch for the word superior. Now, I understand in our culture and in our day and age that we, we are trained... That every viewpoint is exactly the same worth and value. And I get that. I understand that. I think we need to be respectful and kind. But here's the deal. It's not about being politically correct. It's about being correct. It's about being true. What is true? And the reality is, if there's only one way that gets you to heaven, it is dishonest, disrespectful, and a terrible thing to just out of supposed kindness not tell people about the one way. Well, I don't want to challenge their beliefs. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And so understand that the writer of Hebrews is not concerned about that. He just wants us to understand the truth. And he wants this group of people to stay where they can be saved, not step back Because Judaism had its place, but now it is pointed to Messiah, and if you reject Messiah, you are not saved. Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. For it is declared, you are a priest forever. So this is talking about Jesus. Now notice, this is a huge advantage over the priesthood of Aaron, of the Levitical priesthood in the Jewish system. Because what happens there is, you're a priest for your lifetime, then you die, and it goes to your son, and you die, and it goes to your son, and it keeps going. In the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that's an interesting name, um, I doubt anyone this morning said to your spouse or your friend, and said, I hope he talks a lot about Melchizedek today, I'm really curious about that. I understand, I get it. But just so you understand this, uh, back in Genesis, there's this mysterious figure, and he is both a king, a king of both peace and righteousness, and he is a priest. You don't see, in the ancient world, you don't usually see the priest put together with king. You don't see those two roles meshed together. And yet Melchizedek does, and he's the king of what Salem, what becomes Jerusalem which had a special place in God's heart and in God's plan. And so this mysterious person who comes, we don't know anything about his gene- genealogy, and Abraham, the great Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish nation, actually kind of you know, gives him great respect, even tithes to him, gives him gifts to Melchizedek. And here we're told Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, the, the one true God. And so... Jesus is like this mysterious priest that we read about in the book of Genesis. And Jesus is a forever priest. He's the forever mediator and advocate between us and God. It goes on The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced. Now, he's not slamming the law, the law came from God to Moses, to the people. But the law can't change you. The law can't make you different. The law can't create internal changes in you. The law is more concerned about the external. Really, what the law does is it shows you the bar and makes it very clear that you're down here and not hitting the bar. So a better hope is what we need. Watch for that word better. is introduced by which we draw near to God And this really is the heart of what we hope that we draw near to God, that we have a relationship with God, that we're not separated from God. John MacArthur Jr. talks, he says this is the phrase that's most important in this passage that we draw near to God and he says it's at the heart of Christianity. And it was not without an oath Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath because God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So once again, the eternality of Jesus' priesthood is being emphasized, but the fact that God declared it is being emphasized because the way a Jewish priest became a priest was through genetics, through genealogy. If dad's a priest and your boy You get to be a priest. That's how it works. And you see in the Old Testament, you see that sometimes they were faithful priests, sometimes they were terrible priests. You had um, Eli, who was good in a lot of ways, but fell down on the job when it came to fathering, and his sons were terrible priests. So it wasn't a relationship with God. It wasn't God choosing them. It was genetics. We see Samuel, who was a remarkable prophet and priest, and his sons turned out kind of rotten. They were supposed to be priests. They were, you know, grandfathered in because of their genes. All right, keep going. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better, notice that word better, covenant. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The old covenant was a preparation for the new covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So that emphasis on the supremacy, the superiority of the Jesus priesthood. Therefore, he is able to, I love this phrase, save completely. What is happening in the Jewish sacrificial system? You are covering the sins and rolling it forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's actually going to take care of it. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So here's something remarkable. Jesus is up in heaven interceding for us. He's the mediator. He's our defense lawyer. He's the best one ever. I don't know how that all works. I don't know the details of all of that. Maybe God the Father shakes his head occasionally at some of our behavior, and the son goes, remember, Dad, he's with me. I don't know. But he intercedes for us. That's what we want. Within some faith systems, you'll see them uh, pray or ask uh, someone like Mary or a a Christian who has gone before to intercede for us. We don't need that. We have a high priest, Jesus himself, who intercedes for us. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Notice this. This is pointing to the perfection of Jesus Christ, without sin. Every one of us has missed the mark. Every one of us have done wrong, but not Jesus. He is without sin, Those that knew him, those that followed him around, those apostles that watched him in the tough moments, in the easy moments, said he was without sin. Would your roommate say that about you? Would your spouse say that about you? My spouse would not say that about me. Notice exalted above the heavens, so he's fully divine, this priest that we have. He's going to live forever, he's fully divine. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, because Jesus doesn't have a sin problem. He doesn't have to do that first. And then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is a huge deal. If you are a Jewish person practicing the Jewish faith under the Old Testament scriptures, you're going to be going for regular sacrifices because you keep sinning. And that sacrifice didn't do anything but just cover that specific one. It doesn't cover everything. But notice... Jesus sacrificed once for all when he offered himself. What we just celebrated at the Lord's Supper is a once for all sacrifice, a payment in full. The Jewish system, to, to use a financial image, it'd be like paying the minimum payment on your credit card account. Christianity and what Jesus does on the cross, it's paying the entire credit card bill and your school loans and your mortgage payment and your car loan. It's all paid for. The debt is taken care of. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the details matter here. So Jesus, who is perfect, he's walked it all out. He's lived it. He lived the 33 years. He gets the stamp. Okay, you've been made perfect. He was perfect before when he lived in heaven. Now he has faced the challenges we face, faced the temptations we face, and he's perfect. He's been made perfect in that sense. He's walked our walk and done it exactly right. Notice what he does. He sits down. In the Old Testament tabernacle, there were no seats because a Jewish priest, when he's on duty... It's never done because there's constant sacrifices that need to happen. There's constant work that needs to be done. But Jesus can make his sacrifice, the cross we just talked about, and he can sit down, he is done, it's accomplished. From the cross, if you remember, one of the statements he made was, it is finished. And notice where he sits because that matters. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he goes and sits on God's throne. He is fully divine. He's sinless and he's fully divine. So the one who offers the sacrifice, in a sense, is the one who receives the sacrifice. He's part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Not a mere human being. Every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Uh, Jesus was not the right tribe to be a priest of Aaron, descent of Aaron. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So what is given is a glimpse. It's the point to heaven, but it's not the same thing. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. And you can find those better promises in places like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, where you see um, that the law of God is written on our hearts, that we're given new hearts and a new spirit dwells within us. We're promised that the Holy Spirit would come in us and change us for the better. And notice Jesus is the great mediator, the one who comes in between two who are at war or in conflict, God and man. Then it goes on, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So that first covenant, it was incomplete. It wasn't meant to be the forever covenant. It was to point to the new covenant and to the person of Jesus Christ. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. That is heartbreaking. God says, I turned away from them. But in the cross... The justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God are satisfied forever. And so he never turns away from us. He stays with us. He loves us. This is the covenant, verse 10. I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. So he's referencing passages like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So he's offering complete, remember we read earlier in the passage, complete salvation, saved fully. And so this, we're not just covering it and rolling it forward, we're finishing it off. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And historically, what we see happen is Jesus Christ, at the end of his ministry, predicts that Jerusalem's going to be conquered by the Romans again and destroyed in many ways and the temple will be destroyed the sacrificial system will be destroyed the record keeping will be destroyed you can't have a priesthood and trace the genealogy so there's this great um, act of judgment in ad 70 that happens where the romans come in sweep through about a million jews lose their lives in jerusalem and the door on judaism shuts And God says, okay, that time is done. And so if a person tries to walk out Judaism today, there's no way to pay for your sins. There's no way to take care of that because you can't, all those elements have been removed in A.D. 70, this act of judgment. So so let me just lift out a couple things. One is Jesus offers us a better hope. We see that in this particular passage. And I'm not going to unpack that a lot just to point you back to that line that says, We draw near to God. Under the Levitical system, there wasn't this really drawing near to God. There was separation. There was this wall. And nobody got to go into the Holy of Holies unless you were the high priest, and it was once a year. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, a New Testament, a, a new covenant is in place... And if you remember, lots of things happened at the death of Jesus, but one that stands out in particular that fits here is that if you remember, there was this this curtain from the holiest of holies to the other parts of the temple and it ripped from the top to the bottom this big, huge, thick curtain and God ripped it and it's like God saying, hey, there is access, draw near to me through Christ and what just happened on the cross. When we look at this particular passage, we see a better covenant. This is a major theme in Hebrews chapter 8. Notice that we talked about you're saved completely. It's a better covenant. You're saved completely. No more sacrifices. No more worrying about that. It's all taken care of. The Old Testament covenant had a lot of externals to it. The New Testament covenant is mostly about the heart and the attitudes and what's going on in the mind. I mean, there's still behaviors being covered, but it's a, it's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. And then very clearly, one of the big emphases of this passage is a better high priest. Jesus offers us a better high priest. He's a permanent, perpetual high priest. He lives forever. It is claimed that there were about 84 high priests who served from Aaron until the destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70. And so a man would serve for his lifetime, then he would die, and his son would take over. And here we have an eternal priest. And, you know, in a chain of those, you could have good priests, bad priests. You could see fathers and sons. And here we have this permanent, perfect high priest Jesus is a permanent priest. He's also perfect. He's without sin. He doesn't have the same problem that you or I have. Aaron was certainly not perfect. Here he is, Aaron, of of that priesthood. And he and his sister murmured against Moses, God's chosen leader. He was not perfect. When Moses is up there getting the law of God um, on the mountain, What is Aaron doing? He's making an idol, a golden calf, that the people worship instead of God. I mean, God has done the most incredible outpouring of miracles in redemptive history with the plagues. And Aaron quickly, through peer pressure, because of the people, because he wanted to please, makes a golden calf and they worship it. Aaron was not perfect. We need a perfect high priest and Jesus is a perfect high priest. Hebrews 4, 4.15 says of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Don't blow past that. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ lived 33 years and never sinned once. Not in word, in word, not in deed, not in attitude, not in thought pattern. That is incredible. And he lived life on our terms. I always viewed growing up in church, well, of course he did. He just tapped into his God side every time he needed it. That's not what was explained to me in seminary, and this makes more sense to me when I look at it. He lived life as we are, like us in every way. I can't tap into a God side. But he did walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gave him what he needed to be the Messiah. We get to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can walk well. He's also a high priest that offers a better sacrifice. He sat down after dying on the cross. And... Those Jewish priests are always pictured standing because the work is never done. But in Jesus, it is finished. In Jesus, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to be concerned about it. Now, I still encourage confession. I think that's important for us. It's good for us. It's critical for us. Martin Luther used to drive his... Because he was in the Roman Catholic tradition before he started the Protestant Revolution or Reformation. And the great Martin Luther, the Reformer, when he was a Roman Catholic priest, you know, he had a confessor he would go to. And he drove the man crazy because he would keep him in there for hours trying to think of everything he possibly did. And the guy would be like, okay, you're good. And, And Martin Luther would go, oh, what about... And he'd remember something else because he was terrified that what if he forgot to confess something and had to stand before a holy God? We don't have to walk in that kind of terror. We can walk with a confidence that we have been made clean, that we have been forgiven. Then we are offered better promises. This is the last major idea, offered better promises. You Look at our text here. But in fact, this is um, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. But in, the, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another And then you jump down to verse 12 and 13. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more by calling this covenant new. He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And so we have better promises the full forgiveness, completely saved. We don't have to worry about that. I love the scene in Ezekiel chapter 37, it's called the dry bones vision. And there's this valley and the prophet Ezekiel walks into it and he sees just like a dead army is what it looks like. And they're, just, they're down to just the skeletons. And he begins to speak, to preach to it. And the Spirit of God takes those that are dead and gives them life and flesh. And it's a powerful picture of what we're offered in the New Testament. We are spiritually dead But God raises us up, gives us life, and makes us a powerful spiritual army for him. So the big idea is this. Jesus is the only one who can deal with your sin problem. He's the only one that can do it. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, no other leader, no other person, not yourself. Only Jesus can deal with your sin problem the biggest problem you have, the one that will keep you from an eternity of joy in heaven. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, go talk to those in the prayer room. Come talk to me in the lobby. Find somebody who attends this church. We'd be happy to talk to you about it. We'd love to see you put your trust in Christ. We'd love to baptize you as the Bible commands Because Jesus is the only way, Jesus is the only one that can solve your sin problem. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect as you run around the rest of your life, but it means you'll be growing and it means your sin debt is finished. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this time together. We are grateful for all you do for us. We are grateful that you do not leave us in our sins, Lord, I lift up those who maybe have never made a decision. Lord, I pray that you would drive home to them the severity, the seriousness of their sin problem, that they would understand that they need a solution. I pray that, Lord, you will draw them to the great high priest, the one who offers the best sacrifice, the only sacrifice you will accept. Lord, we thank you that we have a permanent high priest, one that intercedes for us, one that offered his very life for us. Lord, we thank you that we can step from spiritual death to life. I pray each of us will walk in that. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus.